Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that's in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either they will hate the one and love the other, or else they will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Just quick context uh, for the church to remind you where we've come, because repetition is a friend of learning. And for those of you who are new this morning, to give you some context for this passage. Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in chapter 1 by saying, Blessed are they, and there's a number of things that he describes, the followers of Christ, those who are following him, those who've turned and trusted God. He says, blessed are the merciful and the meek, and those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He's describing the life of those who've turned to follow him. Before that happens, uh, we get a very vivid picture that creates an image that Jesus is the greater Moses. Because the way Matthew's gospel starts is Jesus goes through the waters of baptism and then he's led into the wilderness and now he's on a mountain. So if you think of the Old Testament, the people of Israel pass through waters and then they are led into the wilderness and then Moses goes up on a mountain. So Jesus is the greater Moses who's not just giving a third reading of the law because they need more than that. He says he's come to fulfill the law. And so in this, what we, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus continually presents is two ways to live, two ways to relate to things. It keeps coming up and it's going to climax all the way to the end of his sermon, these, these choices. And so we're going to look this morning at some of them from this passage here where uh, we find that those who are followers of God, the children of God, those who love God, are taught to go through life identifying and choosing two treasures, choosing between two visions, and choosing between two masters. So first let's explore the choice between the two treasures in verses 19 through to 21. The phrasing is, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. And this phrase, lay up, uh, in the Greek could also be translated, don't treasure, treasure. And the idea here is not that material is bad. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, that was a prevailing spiritual view, right? It's like, well, we got to get away from this, this uh, nasty earth physical stuff and get into the spiritual. The Plato's idea of heaven and the spiritual, Plutarch's idea of, of uh, the spiritual was you leave the physical realm and then you spend eternity in this sort of ethereal spiritual realm, and that's good. But that's not Christianity. That's not Christian faith. That's not what the scriptures teach, and that's not what Jesus is saying, that the material is somehow bad. Don't, don't care about the material world. Remember that Jesus' ministry begins when he's 30, which means for 30 years he's making things. To borrow from Tish Warren, right, author and uh, Anglican priest, she writes this, that God saw fit, to spend 30 years in a vocation of making. The maker has become a maker. And so there is this beautiful dignity to work and life and 
uh, you know, civic relations in the city and bringing our gifts to bear in the city. Jesus, for 30 years, was a part of the community in a very tangible and practical way as a carpenter. So when, when, when Jesus gets up on the mountain and says, don't treasure, treasure, he's certainly not saying that we're sub- somehow to forsake the beauty that is beautifying our neighborhood and our world, Right? our home and our living space and like not caring about beauty. It's not like Christians sell everything you have and just slowly turn beige. That's the will of the Lord. So, but what it, what it is precisely saying is don't treasure the treasure. And that, there's a big difference between enjoying and treasuring. Because this is a conversation actually around, uh, around worship. Because as I've said to you many times, if we take good things and temporal things and give them a coronation ceremony and then make them the ultimate thing, that leads to tremendous disappointment, discouragement, and fear because whatever beautiful thing you've elevated as the ultimate thing cannot satisfy the chronic craving in the human soul because we were created to worship God and that will lead to a chronic disappointment. It will lead to a distortion, a dislocation, a sense of just insatiable dissatisfaction because the wrong thing is at the center. And so this is a stark warning um, against this sort of thing. I remember when the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. I don't know if you remember that because th- there's, there's now 36 Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But the first one, there was a pirate's curse. And the pirate's curse was that they couldn't be satisfied. And so there's this scene where they're trying to drink wine. The pirates are trying to drink wine and enjoy wine on the pirate ship. But because they're so decayed, the wine is just spilling through their ribcage onto, the the, onto the top of the boat. And no matter how much wine they try to enjoy, they, it can't satisfy them. That's don't treasure treasure. And so uh, this discontent, of course, will arise because there's not enough shiny things in the world. You can't click to add to the cart enough to... to to be content. And so this sermon that Jesus is teaching shifts to this place of contrasting these two ways to, uh, these two ways to live. And he's provoking us, I think, to ask ourselves a number of questions in self-diagnosis. But one of them at least is, when I lay my bed on the pillow at night, how do I finish this sentence? I will be okay because... What is that? Because your answer to that is the treasure. Everything's going to be okay. I just got my degree. Everything's going to be okay. I've got a family that loves me and I love them. Everything's going to be okay. I've got great friends. I mean, we could go on a long time, but... Your answer to everything's going to be okay and I can sleep tonight because of this. It can't be smaller than the glory of God. And I know that seems abstract and I'm going to make it concrete a little bit later in, in, the, in the sermon. But we want to think about this. It's, it's all provoking us. Don't treasure the treasure. Is to realize that we will find rest when we, when we remember that our very life is in the hands of God. And that is the ultimate place to be. That is the ultimate comfort. Again, I know that seems abstract, but Jesus makes it quite concrete through his life and through his love. And Paul makes use of this wisdom, by the way, of not treasuring treasure. If you read 1 Timothy 6, 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Just this contentment, the simplicity. Andrew uh, gave us a great encouragement uh, in receiving the offering as he, was, as he was considering Job, who had great, great wealth and great things and 
sort of by all uh, physical standards, he had it all and then he lost it all. But, but actually, because he never lost his God and because he never lost the truth that his, his, hand was in the, his life was in the hands of God, uh, though he lost everything, um, he did have everything that he needed. And he was sustained. And you and I will be sustained. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not treasuring the treasure. The Apostle Paul elsewhere said, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. I can be content in both, content in both situations. He calls that the secret. Just unfazed by things going well and being pulled into the office and the boss saying, we're giving you a bonus, we're giving you a raise, we're giving you a promotion. Or being pulled into the office and they say, we're really sorry, you're an excellent worker, but you just got bought out, you don't have a job on Monday. It's, either way, my life is in the hands of God because I don't treasure treasure. And so he says, don't store up the treasure, he says, don't store up the treasures on earth, store up the treasures in heaven. And when I was a little kid, I, wait, I thought about storing up treasures in heaven Almost like, I mean, maybe a modern example would be like if you've ever, if you've ever played uh, or had uh, someone in your house play a video game, a Lego video game. The Lego characters are running through and they're just collecting a million studs all the time. Everywhere they go. And they're just watching that thing accumulating in the corner. Oh, I just did another mission. And when Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth, lay up your treasures in heaven. He's not saying, okay, well, I'm just going to be a busy little Christian running around doing good works at every opportunity, hoping that heaven's watching because I'm just create, I'm just accumulating those heaven studs. I just got to store up my treasures in heaven. That, that's, that's really, that's much more Plato than New Testament. Because again, in the, in the Greco-Roman idea of spirituality, it's like we're leaving the earth and we're going to spend eternity floating around someplace. But when Jesus says, Store up the treasures in heaven. It begs the question what heaven is. And as we consider the New Testament texts and, and, the, and more, most importantly the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and what all Christians believe at the core of our faith is that Jesus Christ will return. Right? That even regardless of what your eschatology is, if whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, I'm a pan-trib, it'll all pan out. But if, regardless of when the timelines are that you want to sort of exegete the book of Revelation to figure out when are we going and where are we coming? The bottom line is all of the poetic imagery ends with, spoiler alert, Romans, uh, or sorry, Revelation 21, 22. It ends with the kingdom of God, the he- heaven, quote unquote, coming here to earth. So what that means is that's a picture of renewal, the renewal of, of uh, civilization as God intended it to be. That we'll be raised from death to enjoy civilization to use our gifts to his glory. So to lay up our treasures in heaven is to embrace this eternal life now. Live into it now. Live into the congruence of all of it now. You know, this phrase that you and I use in English, eternal life, could also be translated in the Greek, life unto the age. I actually think that's a helpful way to think about it because we are living in an age. But we are now called to live into congruence in a life unto another age, the eternal life. Another age is coming. An age that will supersede this age as Christ returns. And so what that means is it navigates the way you and I do our vocation, live in our neighborhood, relate to politics, relate to suffering. It's a game changer that actually frees us to a life of tremendous generosity. When you are living into the, when you understand this age isn't all there is, we're living into unto another age, the eternal life, and we're living more and more into congruence of it now. In the context of Christ's sermon, Either I'm going to treasure the things on earth or I'm going to treasure the, the things of heaven. The life that he's about to live now to actually show us what it actually looks like. 
And the more that we come into congruence with that, the greater contentment, the great peace, the renewing of the soul, the the realigning to the ways of God. And what this all uh, then uh, provokes us to consider is that that's where that's where our treasure will be. That's where our heart will be. And the and the end of that is going to manifest in generosity. Whereas if we have no concept of the next age, if we think like Plato and the, and the other philosopher Plutarch did that, well, in the end, you know, heaven is, we're zap fried out of here and we're not on planet Earth and really in the end of the day, recycling your cans and your vocation doesn't matter because we're all going to be gone. We're not going to be motivated to be generous people in our, and I'm not talking about, and I say this a lot, like I'm not talking about here in, in, in uh, this KW Redeemer community that we have grandiose ideas of changing the city. I, I am repeatedly asking you pastorally to consider that you and I ought to be living very small and significant lives. Like your neighbor, man. Like just your neighbor, the people you're working with. Seeing that your little world is an opportunity to live into life unto the age and live into that generosity, live into that love, to care, to serve give our lives away. Often the, um, some of the Christian conversations around bringing change seem so big they're intimidating. And sometimes if I were to make a, a criticism of, uh, I'll, I mean, I'll do it as charitably as I can, but some of the modern conversations in, in, in uh, evangelicalism are so closely tied to politics that you'd almost think that the Christian belief is the only way to make changes through politics. But this is absurd. Politics is one way to make change, certainly not the only way to make change. And in a somewhat functioning democratic society such as ours, the only way to make change in politics is to be elected. And the only way to be elected in a democracy is to communicate things that are agreeable to the masses. And so therefore, if the only way to have power to make change is to have things that are agreeable to the masses, then your message must be congruent with the values of the masses. So this is a limiting way, in my view, of... of, uh, for the Christian to think about making change. It's one way, and it's possible, and it, is, it happens all the time as people who love God and love his ways, they, they go into uh, the political sphere, and they're very thoughtful, and they um, speak about things in a way that is charitable and with civility to those who don't share any of our Christian values. I think that's an appropriate and, and worthy way of thinking about politics, but I just want to encourage you that there are many ways to, to be agents of renewal and change to treasure the treasures of heaven, to live into the congruence of that kind of a life, and to be a loving and caring person, live a very small and significant and beautiful life with a heart that is content, not full of anxiety. Because you lay your head on the pillow at night, you're treasuring the right thing, and your heart's always being recalibrated around that that very comforting thing. And to borrow from C.S. Lewis, this is the last thing I'll say on this, then I'll move on. But to borrow from C.S. Lewis, when we think about treasuring uh, the treasures of heaven, then we don't want to relate to that like we're sort of paying holiness tax. Well, first I'm going to do some sort of good Christian things. And once I've paid my holiness tax by going to church and maybe praying or reading the Bible at home, okay, I've paid my holiness tax. God's not going to come and you know, give me problems. And now I can get on with quote-unquote life. Rather, when you recognize that we're tr- we're, we are to treasure uh, the treasures of heaven, we realize then that our love for God is woven into all of life. That it isn't, our life isn't in buckets and categorized. Okay, well, now I'm in 
Sunday mornings at 1030, I'm at Redeemer, and so I'm paying my holiness tax, and I worship God. And then on Monday, we leave that category, and we go into another category called vocation, and so on and so on, and hockey practice, and going out for coffee. And, but rather now, because we treasure the treasures of heaven, our love for Jesus is permeating all of our life. So we have a choice between two treasures. I think a glorious and wonderful treasure, and a very small and temporal treasure, which Jesus says is... is uh, the moth and the rust is going to destroy it. Which leads into the second thing, which is the choice between two visions. And I've already talked about that a bit, so I probably won't take too much time here. But Jesus says that the lamp of the body is the eye. And if your eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. So, again, I think it's provocative, and I've already got into this. What is our vision, and how do we see? What is our vision of heaven? What is our vision of treasure? What is our vision of... What does it even mean and look like for me to be a believer in Kitchener-Waterloo, going to work every day, and being with friends and family. Like, what does that, what is that vision? What does that entail? Is my eye good? Is it generous? Am I congruent with the love and the wisdom of God? Does my worship sort of bleed into the other areas of my life? Or uh, is my eye dark? If I treasure, if I treasure treasure, the things of the world, uh, whatever that is, it could fill in the blank, of course, it could be a hundred things. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be Single-minded, I'm going to be double-minded. My soul is going to be torn in two different ways. And so these two visions that Jesus presents of the eye being good and generous and full of light, uh, he wants us to think about how this, this uh, applies to material things. And this is a very material and practical aspect of the text. So what vision does is when, you ha- when you're a person of vision, whether you're, you're an artist and so you, you see things with an artistic lens, or you are, um, or you're a business person and you see everything in an entrepreneurial lens or an economic lens, or you have a high regard for ecological responsibility, and so you look at that through that lens. Your vision shapes what you're looking at. So vision is not just about what you're seeing, but how you see it. So when Jesus is saying, oh, my, if your eye is full of light and your body's going to be full of light. That, that, that the whole eye affecting the body is a picture of, oh, wow, this actually has a pretty holistic impact on the way that I live and consider things. And so it's not merely what I'm seeing, it's how I'm seeing it. So it's an opportunity. So take, for example, the needs in our city, uh, whether it be the, the ways in which we desire as a church community to care for the poor, corporately or you personally, you walk by a particular need or you hear of a need. What is your reaction to that? What is your reaction to the need? Your reaction to the need is a good indicator of how you see. Because if, when the, if, if, if you get presented with a need and your immediate reaction is, man, this is an inconvenience in my life. Oh my goodness, every time I turn around, somebody's asking me for something, whatever. It's an indicator that you're treasuring treasure and, and, not, treasuring, uh, and not treasuring the treasure of heaven, which is to say, my life is in the hands of God. He will take care of me. He'll make sure I have everything that I need. And therefore, I can live a life of generosity. Therefore, I, can give, I, I am free to give because I am well cared for. And so, if we're not generous and our body is not full of light but full of darkness, the, self, the selfishness manifests itself in miserly ways and we're a little bit like squirrels sort of gathering nuts. Just constant, the constant accumulation of wealth, the constant accumulation of stuff, the constant accumulation of clout, the constant accumulation of the attaboys, 
pats on the back, and the constant accum- accumulation of the likes and the retweets and the hearts and the, the constant accumulation of it is that image, I think, of having the wrong vision, the dark vision, and treasuring the small thing. And so there's this permeating effect that we're encouraged to, to uh, consider. And I've already spoken about heaven, but uh, just touch on it briefly here to say that the vision that Jesus wants us to have of heaven, of course, is not the way that my vision of heaven was as a kid. And I've talk, talked on that a little bit earlier in the sermon already. But when I was a kid, heaven was actually pretty disappointing to me, the idea of heaven. I don't know if that's true for you. Like, I don't know if when people would talk about heaven, your parents or at church or whatever, that really you had this initial reaction like, no, there's so many things I want to do before that cosmic letdown. Because sometimes they describe heaven like, church for forever. You're just like, no, I don't want to go. Right? Those of you with uh, small children, the formation of children to see their, their need for church and to enjoy, begin to enjoy the liturgy and enjoy worship is hard work. Because none of us want to go until there's like a value of the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God. So that formation to, is, needs to be pretty intentional and take some time. But when I was a kid, it was like, no, because every time heaven was presented, there was a lot of styrofoam involved. Uh, there were bathrobes inexplicably. So my concept of heaven was pretty boring. I could think of a hundred things I wanted to do before the way that heaven was described to me. You know, if you die when you're young, you get a diaper and a crossbow. And if you die when you're old, you get a, I don't know, Philadelphia cream cheese tubs or something. Like, I had no idea what this was. And that's why, and you've heard me say this many, many, many times, and I will not stop saying it, that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a teaser trailer of what's coming. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey guys, I'm hungry. Can I have some fish? Do you enjoy meals? Good. Heaven. Renewed earth. Do you enjoy the lake and the sky and the mountains and nature? Good. Because when you're raised from the grave, you'll be able to enjoy all those things again without the ecological deterioration that we're experiencing now. Do you enjoy mercy and justice? Good. Because that's the civilization we're going to be a part of as God raises us from death to enjoy him and enjoy one another. Do you care about technology and innovation and engineering and using, using the you know, human faculties to just come up with wondrous ways of civic life? Good, because we're going to do that from all of eternity. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is, is a teaser trailer that God intends to renew the material. Grace does not erase the material. It renews the material. Therefore, don't treasure the treasure. It's going to be here forever. We're going to enjoy it forever. So leave it down here. Just enjoy it and get on to the greater things that will last for all of eternity, life unto the age, which is the generosity and the love and the proclaiming of the gospel. Because through the acts of love and justice and mercy in a small way in our neighborhoods and in our city, as God, through by his great grace through the church, through not just the lives of love that we're living, but the proclamation of Christ, as people come to faith in Christ, as, as there is a renewal, glorious renewal of living as the people of God, that stuff is lasting for all of eternity. So therefore, the justice and the mercy, the way that you approach your vocations with integrity, it all matters 
Because while I can't comprehensively say to you, here in the resurrection, here's what's staying and here's what God's doing away with. I can't physically, no preacher can say that to you. But what I can say with confidence is, to the degree that you don't treasure the treasure and you live that life of renewal, there are a great many things that you and I bring to the earth through glorious renewal as we reflect God as the as a glassy lake reflects the sky, as we do that, that those things will carry over onto into eternity because we're living in congruence with the Savior. This is a big vision of heaven. Right now, on my deck at home, there's these two boards that have holes in them and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace them next spring. And I replace it board by board because, as you know, well, lump, the price of lumber has come down a little bit, but three boards is going to cost me $75,000. So I just do it board by board. And, um, and it's a little bit like a Theseus ship, the philosophical problem of Theseus ship. I just call it Paolo's deck. So if I replace my deck board by board, eventually, will it be a new deck or will it be the old deck? Is it new or is it different? Has it changed? This is the renewal of all things, friends. As, the, as God restores the earth, that phraseology, the new heavens and the new earth, God eradicates the destruction and the sorrow and the sadness of the paradox that is humanity, but he will renew and restore all things, and he will raise you and I to enjoy it. We need a big vision for heaven, because then you'll have a big vision for what you're up to on Monday, because it will be infused with meaning and love and life, and we'll be able to be generous, because we enjoy treasure, but we don't treasure treasure. Final thing as I close this morning is the choice between the two masters— no one can serve two masters. This is why it's so important to Jesus. He, he, he culminates the teaching of generosity and of stuff into this. It's about actually having two masters. And he uses, notice he uses the heart, love, the heart language of love and hate. Very important. Very provocative. Because having two masters is not like having two jobs. Where you give a bit to one and give a bit to the other. What Jesus presents is... There are two people, and he uses the word master on purpose because in that culture, you're, you, the language was master and slave. Abhorrent, of course, today. But Jesus is using that cultural narrative they, so they can see this. He's saying, there are two people saying, you're mine. God looks on your life and he says, you are mine. But if you don't love and serve God, a loving father, Jesus Christ the King, the loving master, who, think of when God says, you're mine. That's glorious. When Jesus says to you, you are mine, that's glorious. When the stuff says, you're mine, that's not glorious. It's soul eroding. It's tragic is the fast path to anxiety and panic to have something smaller than God say, you're mine. You can't have your family, your friends, your vocation, the letters after your name tell you who you are. You're mine. Only as our hearts rest in the greatness of our God are we his. Because worship is all about orbiting and worshiping like the gravitational pull of the planets around the sun. God is at the center, and there's a gravitational pull of worship as we all surround him. And this is the good news of the gospel, that because of Jesus Christ's perfect life and his atoning death, his death which not only atones all of our sin, but shows that he is the victor, that he is the Lord, 
God not only teaches us that, but that his divine resurrection means that he is vindicated, that his bodily resurrection means that there is a glorious renewal for truly the deepest longings of the human soul. This is what heaven promises. Heaven as the scriptures would describe it, not Plato. And because of his divine resurrection, that we have this great security knowing that our lives are in the hands of God. Jesus, Jesus enjoyed unfathomable wealth and comfort and security and the joy of divinity, and he was willing to come into our poverty. He was willing to take on humanity. He was willing to clothe himself in humanity. He was willing to do these things so that our hearts could be gripped by this gospel, gripped by the truth that this short and fragile life is not all that there is, and that as our hearts are rejuvenated by this truth, We get out of the orbit of materialism, out of the orbit of consumerism, out of the orbit of all of the isms. So that when our when our God says you are mine, we say praise, praise you, Lord, I am yours. Jesus Christ, our king, did not heap up power for himself. He emptied himself and now full of a spirit. May you and I go into the city as imitators of him and empty and empty ourselves from the joy and the comfort of knowing that we are his. Let's pray.